Welcome to the PreparedX podcast, your complete source for crisis, emergency, business continuity and security preparedness interviews, news, and much more. Now, your host, he creates chaos for a living, Rob Burton. Hello and welcome to episode 97 of the PreparedX podcast. I'm your host, Rob Burton, and just before we get started, I want to let you all know that this episode is brought to you by the International Crisis Management Conference. The conference this year is on uh, June 7th and 8th in Newport, Rhode Island. Go to crisisconferences.com for more details. Well, today I'm joined by Chris Payton, who is the Managing Director of Quirk Solutions and is a specialist in the fields of strategy, gaming, transformation, and change, supporting a wide range of public and private sector organizations. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Rob. Really pleased to be joining you today. Thank you. And before we get started, Chris, can you let our listeners know a little bit more about your career um, as well as uh, your previous career in the Royal Marines? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I spent nearly 18 years in in the UK's Royal Marines, um, doing a range of jobs. So I was served from um, 1994 through to 2012. So during that period, um, a lot of conflict um, in places like Kosovo. Um, but I spent the majority of the latter parts of my career in and out of Afghanistan, um, and. I culminated um, my career in the military as being head of strategy on Afghanistan to the David Cameron, Cameron administration and government in, in the UK, um, advising cabinet office um, and other government departments and liaising with the US and globally on, on Afghan strategy, including the plan to get all of the UK troops and their equipment out of Afghanistan and, and back to the UK. Around about that time, I was fortunate enough to get published in the Harvard Business Review for an article around how you plan in the face of uncertainty. And uh, that kind of leapfrogged my career into what I'm doing now, which for the last 10 years, I've built a management consultancy where we specialize in human factors uh, behind business problems. So whether it be transformation and change, mergers and acquisitions, growth strategies, um, centralization, whatever else it might be, cost saving, we, we help solve those, but solve them from the perspective of working with the, the clients, people, and the people within the organization across energy, fast growth tech, um, large events like the Dubai Expo, um, energy and, and uh, power generation pharmaceuticals retail it's, there's a huge range so yeah it's been a it's been a fun 30 years there's no two ways about it yeah that, that's yeah. For sure. that, that's for sure yeah and i also noted in your bio that uh, you co-authored an article on uh, how the uk's royal marines plan in the face of uncertainty and that was uh, published in the harvard business review and in 2018 was published in strategy magazine for an article on how organizations can achieve strategic agility and that's certainly going to be uh, one of our uh, focus topics today yeah actually yeah it was um it was great to be invited to to contribute to those um uh, and uh, I quite enjoy the challenge of doing the writing and the articles. It's uh, not something that I feel comes easy to me. So mm -hmm. I quite enjoy the creative experience. 
Sure. Yeah. 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 I, I, I feel your pain there. <laughs> um, I, well, talk about challenges then. Let's let's start off with, um, you know, in terms of your career so far, what's the most challenging role that you've uh, been in? And it sounds like you've obviously been in a number of them. Yeah, uh, it would be difficult to, to pick out one because um, there's, there's been quite a few. I, I think it would probably be the point at which I started to shift from what we would know as sort of as tactical immediate leadership and onto more operational and strategic leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was when I was um, head of planning all operations in Helmand province in, in Afghanistan. So we were running um, six and a half thousand people. We were working alongside um, and had uh, the US Marine Corps uh, working alongside us as well as Afghan forces. Um, and in my career up until that point, I'd kind of always been on the ground alongside the people that were being affected by my decisions. Mm-hmm. So whatever decision I made, I was comfortable with because it was affecting me just as much as anybody else. And I was being faced with the same levels of risks and implications as everybody else. Right. But when I got into that role of planning all operations for Helmand, all of a sudden, you know, I was in a headquarters and, you know, it's not like the headquarters was completely safe and benign. We were attacked several times, but I was making decisions. I was coming up with plans that were going to affect people that I wouldn't then be alongside. And, mm-hmm. and I found that psychologically really difficult to cope with. Um, one of them was... Um, one of my best friends, uh, he was sharing a room with me inside the base and he was deploying out of the gate every day and going off on the patrols and the operations that I had devised. And so sitting there, you know, through that day or that night, hoping that he was going to come back and that they'd be all right. And knowing that I couldn't affect what was now going to happen. I'd already affected it through the planning that I'd done. I found, I found that emotionally psychologically really challenging wow yeah well thanks for sharing that i, I can't imagine that um you know that was easy uh, you know one bit so thank you for uh, for sharing that um as it relates to threats um that jeopardize organizations it's almost like a, a daily challenge for businesses as well as of course governments around the world um you know you know we're going to talk a little bit about uh, critical decision making and how important it is um, you know, you know, having a process built into an overall crisis management strategy, um, you know, why is that important in terms of supporting uh, incidents and responses to crises? I think the easiest way to answer that is to flip it around and say, what happens if you don't have a decision making process mm. um, as part of your crisis management approach? The if you don't have a decision making process, then we will always tend to revert to our system one thinking, what Daniel Kahneman call our system one thinking, that intuitive, instinctive gut decision making. Extremely rapid, extremely responsive. Um, so, you know, and it's been designed over millennia to protect us. That's why we have it. Right. Um, but we don't use our system two thinking, which is our more analytical slower if you like rational thought and 
instinctive decision making is fine. You know, that system one decision making is fine, but there are a couple of challenges with it. The first is that we will tend to jump to things that have worked before. Our, our system one is, is, if you like, it functions in a way that it spots patterns and it repeats patterns. So if a tiger jumps out at you and your instinctive reaction is to run away and you survived, then right. your, your, your system one thinking tells you every time a tiger jumps out, we run away. Right. Yep. That's what we do. That is the pattern. That's what works. And the problem with crisis management and response and crisis strategies are that situations are changing all the time. So the response to a particular scenario using your system one thinking might not be the most appropriate to another different type of a problem. I think the second thing that is causes problems by not having a decision-making process is that we then start to become affected by our biases as well mm. and our heuristics. So anchoring bias will come in. Um, you know, the first thing that we hear, the first thing that we believe about a situation, we become absolutely anchored to. And we then start to develop a, a solution to it. But it might be that that's actually not the problem. Right. Um, it's just the first problem that's popped into our consciousness. Um, we then start to become affected by confirmation bias. We start to disregard information which is telling us that that situation is not the one we're actually facing. And we only look for information that confirms our first anchored bias that we've gone for. Right, yeah. Um, and I, you know, I saw this, I saw this in Afghanistan when I was in Helmand, where we had a situation one day of a report of an individual with a gunshot wound to the chest. And we were trying to work out where they were so that we could launch the response helicopter, the medical helicopter to go and get them and bring them back for life-saving you know, treatment. And we started to get conflicting coordinates for where that individual was. Mm -hmm. And we kept getting through two different sets of coordinates. But because we were sitting there thrashing through, trying to work out what this was, and you know, you get caught into the emotion of the event. And this is the other problem with not having a decision-making process is you start to become so reactive and everybody becomes so reactive, you become emotionally attached. Right. And that then, that then becomes quite a challenge. And as it transpired, we actually had two separate individuals, both of whom had gunshot wounds to the chest. Right. But we, we were trying to thrash around where to find them and how and why. So I think having a decision-making process helps you go into more of that system two thinking, that an analytical thinking. Right, let's just clarify exactly what's going on. What are the facts that we've got? What are the elements we've got? What are the resources we've got at our available at our disposal? It takes some of the emotion out, I believe, of the situation and it also allows people to understand where they are. If you have a set number of stages that you go through and everybody in the organization is aware of what those set number of stages are, then it, it becomes much more familiar to them when you're in the crisis and it just calms everybody down. 
You know, I like that. I like the uh, take some of the emotion out of it. I, I really think that's um, a really valid point. And um, <clears throat> when we run these tabletop exercises and even full scale exercises, we ran one last year. Uh, there's a lot mm. of that emotion and, and chaos um, if there's not a system in place. And, and that's just a basic system of communications, never mind uh, critical decision making. So so that's a great point. Thank you. No, no, no problem at all. I, I mean, you know, when we're doing these exercises and the sort of tabletops and scenario planning that you that you do, you know, and that you run, you know, part of what we're trying to engender is a sense of that emotion because you want people to feel the pressure of the reality right. of the situation, right? Um, but equally, what we're looking for is to make that normal, is to make that familiar, and so people don't let it get overwhelm them if you like when they're actually in the situation for real sure yeah in the uh, harvard business review article uh, you describe the seven questions uh, for our listeners can you provide some insight onto that methodology and the seven questions please um yeah sure it's it was a technique that was developed by the uk military gosh it, it must be it must be about 30, 35 years ago now, um, as, a, as a rapid decision-making framework. Um, it was a way in which you could ask yourself a, a set of very simple questions, sequential questions, which would lead you to the best response you could possibly achieve at that point in time. So it was designed for high-intensity, high-fluid situations, extreme volatility, um, you know the sorts of sorts of situations we see ourselves facing now around around the world. Um, the first question essentially is, you know, what is the situation and how is it affecting me? So, what's going on? Is it that a competitor has come in and stolen some market share? Is it that trading routes and you know trading relationships have been torn up as we've seen through the through the you know the, the conflict in Ukraine? It's changed all sorts of dynamics around the world in terms of trading relationships and patterns. Um, and so what is that situation? But more importantly, how is it affecting me? Now, that could be affecting me in terms of my organization or it can be affecting me personally. You know, how, how am I feeling right now? The second question then is, so based on that situation, what are the objectives I want to achieve mm -hmm. and why? You know, so you're, you're now starting to narrow it down to maybe four or five objectives that you're looking to you're looking to achieve. Usually there are multiple. You rarely have a situation in which it's just like, right, well, this is just the objective I want to achieve. And it's the one singular objective. You normally have four or five that you're looking to achieve to, to recreate some balance. The, the third and fourth questions are really the heart of the analysis, if you like. Because the third question is around the style or the manner in which you feel you want to go and achieve those objectives. So do you want to be high risk? Do you want to be low risk? Are you looking at maybe collaborating with a competitor or with, with a supplier or something like that? Um, or do you want to keep this very much organic and close to, close to home? The, the fourth question then runs off that and says, okay, so, if that's the style in which I want to achieve each of these separate objectives, where is the best place I can achieve that? It might be a market sector, it might be a geography, it might be a particular demographic, 
um, that, that we're after. It might be with a particular service offering that we have. Um, so you're starting now to whittle down, if you like, the options from, right, what's the situation? What do I want to achieve into how might I go about each of those component parts and where can I now best achieve those component parts? It's kind of like asking yourself, where do I want to play and how can I win, if right. you like? Um, I think the interesting thing for me is that um, the military then and this, this technique, it's only at question five that you ask yourself the question of what resources do I need? Mm. And I think that's really important because it en enables the previous steps to be considered with a really open mindset. Yep. Um, and a really open framework it's almost like writing down your santa claus list <laughs> you know if i could have anything i want what what <clears> could it be and it's not until you get to question five that you start to ask yourself the hard questions of well what do i need to make all this work because i know i'm not going to have enough of everything mm -hmm. so where are now the decisions i'm having to make about what i drop what i don't drop um or on to question six how can i best synchronize what i'm doing so this is now about time and space and delivery. So you know what you're doing when, and it might be that you can use some resources multiple times, but sequentially. So your plan still works, but it's just a bit slower than if you had everything you could possibly wish for. And then the seventh question is, what control measures do I need to impose? And basically, how do I stop myself getting distracted by shiny things? You know. <laughs> As I start to roll this plan out, you know, what is it that will keep me on track and keep me focused? So, yeah, it's a, I've described it, hopefully, to help people understand it. But once you get into that routine and into that system, it can be really, really quick to use. Yeah, that's really, uh, really good information. And, uh, you know, that last one you mentioned there really, really hits home in terms of um, staying, staying on focus when we, when we run these exercises, and when teams respond to these crises, <clears throat> if they don't have a thorough discipline process, even for simple meetings, when they come together, and having a plan for those meetings, um, <clears throat> they can get caught up with those, um, you know, that noise, as we call it, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Um, yeah. So I really like a quote uh, from the article, uh, and it's um, planners issue warning orders at the commando and company levels as well, uh, thereby ensuring that everyone throughout the organization has the same understanding of what needs to happen and why. So I, you know, again, that, that took me back to my military days there, Chris, in your experience, is this something that is not as common within businesses and should be part of a crisis response process? I don't see it being particularly common within businesses. Um, you know, the, the military are really hard over on creating as much common situational understanding and situational awareness across the organization as they can and as rapidly as they can. Um, and I don't think that businesses necessarily do it. I think they understand the importance of it but I don't think they, that they do it you know, as, as effectively as they could. The tendency, I think, is that people want to wait until they're absolutely certain of the information that they're about to release before they release it. Mm -hmm. But all that does is it delays the response from the 
parts and component parts of the organization that you need to respond when you want them to go you know there's this sort of sense that i'll create the whole plan until i'm absolutely convinced it's perfect then i'll hit go and now i'm dismayed that the organization is taking so long to spin its wheels up to now deliver that response and we are losing time we're losing the advantage that we that we might have had but the military are really good at drip feeding and saying okay let's take that seven questions approach that we were just talking about as soon as they finish that first piece that situational understanding they release that version of their situational understanding out to the organization whilst they move on to the next questions of well, what are the objectives I want to achieve and where might I best achieve them and, and it does two things it, it it enables the other parts of the organization to come back and go you aren't quite right mm -hmm. so your situational understanding is slightly different and that improves and enhances your planning as you're moving down the stream but the other part is that it starts to allow people to look at it and start to spin up and, and get themselves ready. You know, if you get to the point where you've done your analysis of where might we best achieve these effects and who might be involved, if you're letting them, those organizations know, look, there's still some planning to go, but just as a warning, we see ourselves operating in X and Y with you know operations and finance and sales and whatever else marketing operating together to deliver this they can start to get themselves going and get themselves ready and the critique and the challenge i often get back on that is well that's all great but if we've told people a drip of information and now they're starting to react and it's then we need to change the plan everyone's getting really frustrated and we're causing confusion and yeah okay fine there, there, you know you can cause a, de a degree of uncertainty but i think it's much more important that people are starting to become engaged and focused on the issue at hand and the, the sooner we can spin those people up the more adaptable the more agile the more nimble they become and they're much more aware of it if you suddenly hit them with this plan that needs to be delivered they just aren't in the right mindset. Whereas if they've been looking at it and thinking about it, even if they've had some slightly different instruction, their head's in the game, so right. to speak. Yeah, and I think even if there's a certain amount of you know, disagreement or uh, at least you've had that discussion, right? And, you, and you've thought through the process with those different, cro in, in, in the corporate world, certainly here in the States, those different cross-functional leaders um, have been part of that process as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we all know how to solve problems, mm -hmm. you know, and we, we find ourselves in usually in senior leadership, senior management roles within large organizations responsible for our particular departmental or functional areas because we're good at solving problems and we're good at, at leading. The, the slight issue is that that means we always tend to default. If you, you know, if we go all the way back to the start of this conversation yes. to our system one thinking the stuff that worked in the past. And so we might be solving the problem, but are we solving the problem in the most effective way, in the most cost effective way? Hmm. And actually, sometimes having a challenge coming back up from lower in the organization to say, hey, look, I'm a lot closer to the coalface on this. And I can tell you that that and that will work, but this and this will work better. 
now all of a sudden we're in a whole different ball game but that relies on us having a culture where we're more open to people coming back and posing those questions yes yeah 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 excellent excellent um so in terms of technology we see a lot of technology coming out um in, in our world over here in the states as it relates to helping um you know organizations prepare and respond to um cyber events or physical threats that impact their businesses and of course even um you know natural disasters what kind of technology do you see supporting critical thinking and decision making and what are the pitfalls of thinking that technology is the answer without uh, a human team behind it? Um, so I think it, for me, it links back to the to the previous um, chat we were having there about uh, situational awareness. I think any technology that can help share the the picture, if you like, of what is going on. We used to talk, you know, previously about, you know, the common recognized picture. If, if you have a situation in which everybody is aware there's a problem, but everybody has a different perception of that problem, then you're in a really dangerous place. Mm. So you want people to have a common understanding. You want people to have that same situational awareness of what is going on. And I think platforms that allow that, that allow collaborative sharing of information, of there being a single version of the truth, um, are, is, are hugely beneficial and, and really important. Uh, the point at which technology starts to become unhelpful, I think, is where we rely on it for the answers. And I'm, so I'm starting to talk here more about AI um, and artificial intelligence and, and things like that particularly in a crisis response situation, because for me, AI is fantastic. It's an incredible capability, but it relies on predicting future patterns based on past patterns. Mm -hmm. And there's no saying that the situation that you're in right now or the situation that the organization is in when it's facing a crisis matches any previous past patterns. So I think relying on things like that can be can be um, quite difficult. I think also the problem sometimes with technology, even when we're trying to create a common recognized situational awareness, is that people get drawn into gazing at the technology. Mm -hmm. And they become drawn into being overly focused on what is inside the technology and everything else becomes wrong. Right. And so critical information can be bouncing in, like you say, as part of the noise mm -hmm. that's happening around us. But everybody is gazing at the screen and looking at the screen and we're missing key bits of information that have popped in from elsewhere that aren't being coming through the technology that we're using. So I think using technology as a means of enabling and enhancing absolutely relying on it absolutely not and being very aware that we want to have our antenna up and out so that we're not just listening to the technology and the sources from the technology but all the other pieces as well as to as to how we might go about it 
Yeah, that, that's brilliant. And, um, you know, we, you know, we, we see that um, again with, um, you know, especially in the, you know, the cyber world that we live in today and, and some of the exercises, ransomware or the other uh, types of exercises that uh, we run. And um, of course, that's a big technology play in terms of the, the scenario and the, and the exercise that, uh, that you run. So <clears throat> you do find that um, there's a lot of um, those types of organizations that are obviously heavily reliant on technology because, uh, you know, that they're concerned um, about the cyber um, and there's a big play on the, the cyber teams within the organization. Um, but what we always say is, you know, of course, you've been given that, um, you know, analysis of what's going on uh, around you. Uh, and, you know, as that actually helped in, in your decision making process. So bringing that human team together, along, like you said, with with the information um, that's been created, um, you know, um, you know, it, you know, for us it is uh, is imperative. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't couldn't agree more. And um, okay, Chris, well, uh, finally here, as we start to wrap up, um, you know, we always like to end and, and ask our guests uh, the importance of scenario planning and, and practicing uh, critical decision making through exercises. What's your opinion on that? I think it's really, I think it's really, really important. Um, but it's important provided that we do it in the right way. I've seen a lot of crisis response exercises and business continuity exercises done, which are designed to test the business continuity plan. So all you've actually done is designed an exercise which tests an existing plan. And that assumes that the plan is, is fit for purpose. So the scenario planning piece that you mentioned there for me is, is, the, is the key piece. Because we want to be asking ourselves, what are the scenarios that we could be facing? what would we do in that particular scenario and that then informs things like our business continuity plans and our structures and the way in which we go about it because you can test a business continuity plan endlessly and keep proving over and over and over that your response to that business continuity plan is perfect but if the business continuity plan is no longer relevant to the situations and the scenarios that you might face you're wasting time. Mm. So I think that I think that doing the right kind of exercises is really important. Um, doing the exercises, for, you know, with, with different perspectives as well is super important. And because it's it's enabling you not just to bring your decision making forward, to consider the decisions that you might have to make in the future. How would that feel? What would you be going through at that point in time? What information do you need to help make those decisions? So as soon as it kicks in in the future for real, you're much more familiar with it, which is obviously an advantage. But it also makes sure for me, if you do it well, that the decision making levels are correct. Um, David Marquette talks about pushing the authority to the information. How can we get the decision-making threshold to be right at the point at which the information is available and therefore our response time is extremely rapid rather than waiting for the information to come all the way up to a higher level authority by which point in time we've we've lost the advantage so my one of my old bosses used to call call it delegating to the point of discomfort <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and so 
we can practice that through exercises. We can practice that delegation. We can help people experience that for the first time, get more junior people in the organization, more comfortable with making decisions, get ourselves at a senior level in the organization, more comfortable with delegating those decisions and seeing the results of the people that are around us and the people that work for us and how that then starts to build and enhance that common level of trust. So I would say it's absolutely critical. Great. Thank you. Well, um, wonderful episode today, Chris. Thank you again for your time. No problem at all. I've been absolutely delighted to take part and I hope people have enjoyed the, the content. Yeah, and just as as we finalise uh, the final comments here, have you have anything to to wrap up in terms of uh, your final comments for our listeners? And uh, if they want to contact you, Chris, how can they do that? Um, so they can get in touch with me via the contact page on our website, which is uh, quirksolutions.co.uk, or they'll find me on LinkedIn equally. I'm Chris Payton, P-A-T-O-N, um, and I'm at Quirk Solutions. Um, and I think, you know, the... Just the, the sort of thoughts I suppose that to leave with is you know, we all know the phrase that no plan survives contact with reality you know or you know I, I used to do a fair bit of boxing um, in the Royal Marines and you know I quite like Mike Tyson's you know everyone has a plan till they get punched in the face mm. and, and I think that I think that I would just encourage people out there to push their plans to the point of failure during the planning process and enjoy the fact that you can actually do that in a safe space create the psychological safe space to do so and see the benefits of it rather than trying to create the perfect plan roll it out and then have to struggle when unexpectedly but predictably it starts to go wrong so pushing, pushing yourselves to the point of, let's really critique this. Let's push this to the point of failure. Let's get comfortable with saying, let's imagine this has gone wrong. Why would it go wrong? Rather than just waiting for it to happen for real, which is very expensive. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, could cost lives as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you for your time today, uh, Chris. Um, I hope you have a nice afternoon there in the UK. and I look forward to uh, speaking with you again soon. Thanks, Rob. It's been a pleasure. Well, that wraps up episode 97 already of the PreparedX podcast. I encourage you to rate us on iTunes or any of the other outlets where you're listening to this episode. Thank you for your time today. And until next time, have a safe and productive day. Take care.